Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 113 of UAB Green and Told, original debut Monday, December 18th, 2023. This podcast gives us the chance to share stories from members of the UAB community. Take a listen back to past episodes at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold on Spotify or the Apple Podcast app. And while you're there, leave a written review so more alums can discover us. I'm Greg Barry, a UAB alum and director of communications in the Office of Alumni Affairs. According to the National Cancer Institute, nearly 2 million new cases of cancer are diagnosed in the U.S. each year, and one in two of us will develop some form of cancer during our lifetime. The risk of cancer, however, isn't high for teenagers or 20-somethings. For Cheyenne Sanchez, that's when her diagnosis came. So the whole time I'm just laying there like, what are they talking about? Is it bad? Is it good? I don't know. As someone who grew up singing in school and at church, her cancer really hit close, like an Adam's apple popped up on her neck seemingly overnight. The recovery was an incredible surprise. I woke up from surgery and I was singing. No kidding. Not kidding. They said that it would be six weeks. And of course, you know, I was preparing myself for this six weeks of not being able to talk, not being able to sing. And she hasn't stopped. In fact, as Cheyenne will share, she recently got a call of a lifetime, one that dreams are made of. I got a message from my choir leader and she was like, hey, can you be in LA next Thursday to sing at the Grammys? From spending her childhood on 10 acres of land in the Morgan County Triangle in Alabama to performing on the Grammy stage in L.A., Cheyenne Sanchez has been living a dream. But for a moment in time, that dream turned into a nightmare after she was diagnosed with cancer as an undergrad. Before we learn more about overcoming that obstacle and ultimately singing at the Grammys, we need to know more about her as a child. I was the center of attention. <laughs> I was I was not an only child, but my brother was 14 years older than me. So when I was born, I was like the only baby, really, in the family. So, But I always was the one that played in the middle of the living room. Like, I never played in my room. I would take all of my stuff and bring it to the living room because I wanted to be around everybody. Um, so I was just, I always loved people. I loved activities. I was involved in everything that you could possibly be involved in, which I still am as an adult. Um, and I was just fun and and involved and overly disciplined. And, you know, everything I did, I was I did it with 100%. What kind of activities were you involved in, you know, as a middle schooler or a high schooler, as you were working your way towards college? Yeah, anything music. So, of course, I was um, in choir, show choir with school. And then at church, I also was on the worship team for the youth. Um, when I was even a little kid, we had little kids worship team. So I was always, always singing, always worshiping. I did also run cross country, um, which nobody ever expected because I wasn't an athletic person, but you got out of class early. So, hey, <laughs> why not? Um, so I ran cross country um, and track some, yeah, and mostly just that, yeah. When it came to music and singing, who were some of your influences? Who did you look up to? Oh, goodness. So, I mean, of course, anybody in the in the worship world. So I love gospel music. So I loved, you know, like CeCe Wannins, Eddie James, all of those vibes. Yeah. So as you're working your way in the show choir, doing cross country, running track, what led you to UAB? So that's actually, it was quite a journey. I actually started my college career at the University of Alabama 
I grew up, you know, big Roll Tide Bama fans, and I was the first one in my family to go to college. So um, we did it big, and I went to Bama, and I was really involved there. I was on the student and athletic recruitment team. I did Project Help. I was in a sorority, Alpha Delta Pi, all the things. And then um, my junior year of college, I got diagnosed with papillary thyroid cancer. So um, I went for my surgery and treatments at UAB and took a semester off from school. So by then I was kind of loving the Birmingham area and had made friends there. So I just decided to transfer to UAB and finish my college career there. So I, I was there for two years and so that, but that's how I ended up there. How much time were you out of school between the time you left UA and the time you returned to UAB because of the cancer? It was just one semester. And everybody, my friends and family were very shocked by that. They were like, are you sure you're ready to go back? Um, I got diagnosed in October. Um, so I took that was kind of my semester that August, October that I guess that's fall. Um, that semester I took off. I was had surgery and treatments and finally declared cancer free end of December. And so I started my semester back in the spring. When you were diagnosed with the cancer, what was your life like? I mean, how devastating was it? Because here you are, somebody that's just beginning adulthood as a 21-year-old. Yes. Um, well, I, yeah, like you said, I was 21 years old. So I had really just felt like I was, you know, living my best life and in college. And I'll never forget, I was actually, after my biopsies were done, it was, it was a really stressful situation because my parents were in the waiting room. Of course, I was having my biopsies done. They had the pathologist actually in the room. So they would test my lymph nodes, give it to the pathologist. They would test it and then they would go outside and talk about it. And then they would come inside and do it again. So the whole time I'm just laying there like, what are they talking about? Is it bad? Is it good? I don't know. And so then I was alone after they had gotten done and the doctor that had done the biopsy came in and she was like, I just want to let you know that we're 99% positive that this is cancer and just take it one step at a time. And I just remember sitting there alone and I was like, well, did you tell my parents? And she was like, yeah, we told them. So I was like, okay. And so I kind of just collected myself because I wasn't sure really what their reaction would be. So of course I walked out in the waiting room and they're there, they're hysterically crying. And I just looked at them and I was like, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> and that's kind of, I just made a decision right then that I was going to be okay and that God was going to take care of me and it was all going to work out. But, you know, we lost my brother when I was 10 years old to a house fire. So they had already lost one child. So I had kind of gotten used to being the strong, everybody's going to be okay person. And I just am naturally a very positive person. So um, I was thankful for that mindset that I had already trained myself to have. Hearing that story, I, I'm getting goosebumps. Um, and I think we need to rewind just slightly. What caused you to go in? What were you experiencing that you're like, okay, there's something wrong with my body. Something's not right. Yes, I was actually on my way home from Tuscaloosa and a friend of mine was riding with me and I was like, my neck hurts. And he was like, you have a knot on your neck. And I was like, what kind of knot? And so I looked in the mirror and it was literally like an Adam's apple had popped up on my neck. And it was almost like it had popped up overnight. I had not even noticed it. 
And so I made an appointment with my primary care physician. They ran my thyroid labs and everything came back normal. So then they ordered me for, I think it's a nuclear exam where they can test what parts of your thyroids are working and what parts are not. So the right side of my thyroid was completely black, which meant it wasn't working. So the left side of my thyroid was overworking, which is why my labs were still normal. So they referred me to a general surgeon. He did an ultrasound and a biopsy in his office and said that everything looked normal. The biopsy was normal. So at the time I was working as a medical assistant for a doctor in Tuscaloosa. And he was like, I don't feel comfortable with this. I have friends at Kirkland Clinic. Let me make some phone calls. So I was like, absolutely. So um, he made an appointment for me with Dr. Ball at the endocrinology clinic at Kirkland Clinic. And it was months until I could get in there. So by then I had already had my three month appointment with the original general surgeon. And when I went to that appointment, he did another ultrasound and he was like, hey, this has grown. What are you doing next Thursday? Can we take it out? And I was like, well, why has it grown? You know, at this point I was, I was pre-med in college. And so I was like, well, why has it grown? What, what are the surrounding areas looking like, et cetera, et cetera. And he couldn't really give me any answers. So I was like, I'm going to wait for my appointment at Kirkland Clinic, which was like that next week. So I went to see Dr. Ball. She ordered an official ultrasound. And in that ultrasound is when they showed my lymph nodes were abnormal. So that's when they did the biopsies. And that's when they found out that it was not just in my thyroid, but it had spread to my lymph nodes in my neck and shoulder area. I can't imagine as a youngster going through what you did. What kept you positive? You said you're a positive person, but it's easy to get derailed and not have that positivity in your life. Yeah. So I'm a Christian and I believe in God and I believe that he has a plan for everything. And so he's carried me through everything in life. And so I really just gave it to him and I said, God, here it is. You know, you want what's best for me. You have plans to prosper me and not to harm me for hope in a future. So I, there's, there was nothing that I could do about it. It was out of my control. And so I had to just have faith and trust in him. And there were moments where I was mad. You know, of course, there were moments when I was upset, um, when the doctors told me that I would probably never be able to sing again because of the surgery and how your thyroid surrounds your vocal cords. I remember telling God, I was like, God, if you take my voice away, I'm going to be very mad at you. <laughs> and, you know, I listened to one of my favorite preachers is Christine Kane, and she had thyroid surgery also. And she tells a story where she's like, God, if you take my voice, I'll still serve you. And that was, unfortunately, those were not my thoughts. I was like, God, I will be mad at you, which I think is a normal reaction and that's fine. But I, I did, I had to just trust him. I had to have faith. You've been the center of your parents' lives for 21 years at this time. You're singing, you're having fun. To not be able to sing, I mean, that would have been huge just because it has been such a part of your life. From the time that you had the surgery to the time that you did the recovery and you were able to sing again, how long was that? So it was a miracle. I was I was wake I woke up from surgery and I was singing. No kidding. Not kidding. They said that it would be six weeks. And of course, you know, I was preparing myself for this six weeks of not being able to talk, not being able to sing nothing. And I woke up from surgery and I was actually speaking Spanish 
<laughs> when I woke up from my anesthesia, which is interesting because <laughs> I'm not fluent in Spanish, but I am half Hispanic. But for some reason, I was speaking Spanish in my subconscious, I guess. And um, that evening, I was I was singing. At what point were you comfortable? Obviously, you were because of your faith, but at what point were you comfortable with where the cancer was, when it was gone, being able to sing after everything had happened? So I actually didn't tell anybody that I had cancer and that I was going through all of that. Um, I told some really close friends and family. I just didn't really want the attention of it or the kind of for people to look at me like poor pitiful Cheyenne. You know, I've always been a big light, so I didn't want to be the the sad part of people's days. Um, so I chose not to tell anybody. I chose to kind of keep it a secret. So I think in January, after everything had passed, I had already done my radiation and been declared, you know, cancer free. I made a long Facebook post sharing my story and my testimony and the miracle that God had done in my life and in my voice. And there were several people that were really upset with me because I didn't tell them um, that I didn't allow them to be there for me, I guess you could say. But for me, it was just kind of a, I wanted to keep it close and and be able to process things on my own. You mentioned previously that you were pre-med at the time. You didn't end up that way. You went public health route. What changed? I did. Um, I was. I think I was just ready to graduate at that point. I was just so ready to have my degree and start a new chapter and really, you know, get my feet under me. I've always had a, a huge drive to be successful. So, I. I would have had to kind of refresh all of my science courses and make better grades and, you know, just all of the things. And so at that time I was just like, let's just reroute. And then I also just realized that there's a huge lack of education when it comes to healthcare. And I realized that had I not known that I had options to go see specialists or go have second opinions or go do this or go do that, I would have maybe went in that first surgery with the general surgeon and he would maybe not have gotten my lymph nodes that had the cancer. Um, so it was just kind of like, what can I do to make an impact with the skills that I have, which is, you know, great communication, relationship building, stuff like that. You took the public health route at UAB. What was it like getting back into the classroom after having a period of time away? It's not a great period of time that some may think it is, but you still had to make an adjustment because not only are you changing schools, oh yeah, you're changing majors. I think it was a huge adjustment, mainly because I was changing schools. Um, I didn't have any friends that were at UAB at the time. And so, but I do think that I enjoyed choosing the public health route because number one, it was something I was passionate about. And then number two, the classes were smaller and more intimate. So whereas at Alabama, of course you have 100 to 200 people in one classroom. So with UAB, I had 30 to 50 people in a classroom and I could build relationships. I could make friends. I could have one-on-one -on -one conversations with my professors. Um, and so I actually think that was much easier for me once I kind of got the hang of it. But it, it did take a minute. All this while, are you still continuing to sing while you're in college at UAB with the church, with the university, anything like that? So I wasn't singing at the time um, just because I didn't really get involved in the extracurriculars while I was at UAB. 
um, and my church was back at home. So I did kind of go through the process at Church of the Highlands to sing, but I was working at the time and then of course going to school full time. So there wasn't really much time for it. I was singing, of course, on my own, but I wasn't singing officially in Birmingham. When you were at UAB, what kind of kept you there? Because you mentioned you didn't have the friends, you didn't have that core group, especially when you first started. I imagine just meeting you and knowing what you're like, you probably grew that real quick, but what kept you at UAB? I did have one friend that transferred with me from the University of Alabama. Um, she's still currently one of my best friends. So, and she was there, she had already kind of been there while I was going through my treatments and cancer journey. So she had made friends. So I became friends with her friends. And then I had um, other family friends that lived in Birmingham. So I think just outside of the school base, I was kind of plugged in in different areas, I guess you could say. So that's what kept me there. And then just finishing strong really is what kept me there. You finished with a Bachelor's of Science in Public Health. With that degree, what was the grand plan? What did you want to do and give back? My my big dream as a little girl was that I wanted to deliver babies. That was why I was in med school. I wanted to be a, an OB and deliver babies. And then, of course, you know, that kind of didn't really go as planned yet. I mean, you never know what could happen. It's never too late. But my goal was to open up a nonprofit, like a birthing clinic um, for mothers who didn't have insurance to be able to access all of the special fun things like the 3D and 4D ultrasounds that maybe they don't get to experience. Um, my dad was over our Spanish ministry when I was growing up. And I remember there was a lady, a Hispanic lady that had came in there and she was pregnant and she didn't know what she was having. She didn't know if she was having a boy or a girl come to find out she was having twins. Um, and so I just remember experiencing that with her and thinking nobody should be denied access to these things. And, you know, that was 10 years ago or over 10 years ago. So things have definitely changed since then. But my goal was to open up a clinic where women could feel loved and that they could have great support, um, adoption clinics, foster care clinics, stuff like that. Professionally, what are you doing today? Today, I am in the hospice world. I work as a community educator for Affinity Hospice and Palliative Care. And that has kind of become my new passion since experiencing that with my grandfather and my uncle. Um, hospice seems to be a scary word to most people. And most people think if they go on hospice, they're going to die in the next week or days. And that's just simply not true anymore. We have patients that utilize the hospice benefit for six months to a year, sometimes two years. And it is a true, true gift that people work for their entire lives. And so my job is to go out into the community, educate physicians and hospitals and nursing homes on the hospice benefit and teaching them how to have that conversation with their patients or letting them allow me to have that conversation with their patients. And all this while you're still singing. Yes. You got a remarkable experience several months ago. Back in March, you were able to experience something that most of us never will. Let's be honest about it, because you stood on that Grammy stage in front of millions and were able to sing. How did that experience come about? Yes. So it was actually February. Um, but I started singing with Maverick City Music, which is a worship group. Um, 
a little, I guess it was three years ago now. It seems like it was just yesterday, but I went to just a random open call album recording that they had in Atlanta three years ago and a friend of a friend, I didn't even know her, sent it to me and was like, you need to go to this. And so I was like, okay. So I just showed up by myself, um, made friends and then kind of joined the Maverick City community um, about a year later, they had their official Christmas recording, which the choir was a big part of. So I was at that. It was at that that they brought in a choir director, Jason McGee, and they had they still didn't have an official choir yet. It was just kind of like they sent stuff out to people who had been at their things and whoever came, came. Well, the choir was a pivotal piece of that Christmas recording. And if you listen to it, you'll you'll hear us and you'll see it. But so then they decided to form an official Maverick City Gospel Choir. So they had auditions and I auditioned, which of course I already knew everybody by then. So I made it into the choir. And then they also asked me to be a leader of the Sopranos for the Southern region. So I'm one of the choir leaders. And so I've just been doing stuff with them. And what happens is they have artists that kind of know that Maverick City has this huge choir of people who can sing that's already vetted and so a lot of different artists will reach out to us for different things and so they'll pick they'll either pick who they want to go or they'll say hey who can go here this date sing with these people and so um but the grammys was that's that was that was crazy because i got a message from my choir leader and she was like hey can you be in la next thursday to sing at the grammys <laughs> Let me know by tomorrow at 12. And I was like, yes. I mean, I was sitting at Rock and Roll Sushi with my one of my friends. <laughs> and I was like, absolutely, I will be there. And so I didn't even look at the flight cost or anything. And my schedule, nothing. Nothing mattered in that moment. I was like, I will be there. You don't have to wait till tomorrow. You can count on me. So, yes. When you step foot on that stage, A, what were the nerves like? Yeah, there was only a few hundred people in the audience there, but millions worldwide. And what was that overall experience like? I really don't think that there were any nerves and people think I'm crazy when I say that. It's kind of my safe place. The stage and music is my safe place. So, I mean, I stepped on that stage and in my head, I was like, God put me here. You know, like this is where I'm supposed to be in this moment. And I kept telling myself that even backstage, when you had all of these big time celebrities just walking past you or you're, you know, standing next to The Rock or J-Lo in the back hallway. And I'm standing there like, don't fangirl right now. Like you're supposed to be here. Okay. <laughs> you're, you are talent. You are one of them. So, um, I think I, I was there on a mission, you know, the Grammys is not necessarily known to be a Christian award show at all and you know Quavo chose to bring Christian music into his tribute um and so that was that was a big deal for us yes. to be there and to bring that ministry and that light into there considering what you went through just a few years ago could you ever have imagined this ever happening that you'd be on the world stage at the Grammys I mean never never and what's really funny is the first time that I ever sang at the Opry was for the K-Love Awards two years before that. And I that was always a big dream of mine. I wanted to sing at the Grand Ole Opry. That was a dream of mine since I was a little girl. And I remember telling my dad then, I was like, well, where do I go from here? 
And he said, the Grammys. And I said, oh, whatever, dad, but sure. And then I did. And so it's, it's, it's wild, honestly. It's, it's a miracle. That's Cheyenne Sanchez. In 2017, she earned her Bachelor of Science degree from the School of Public Health. Now, she's a community educator in hospice care for Affinity Hospice, Bridgeway Hospice, and Palliative Care in Decatur, Alabama. While she may have started at a different school within the UA system, she definitely has a great idea of what it means to be a blazer. I think to me, being a blazer is finishing strong, deciding to never give up, keeping your eyes focused on the prize, whatever that is for you, whether that's your degree, whether that's athletics, whether that's arts, whatever it is that life is going to happen. Things are going to throw curveballs, but you have to decide to keep going and keep your eyes on the prize and finish strong. And I think that's that's a great representation of, of the Blazers. Be sure to check out past episodes of the UAB Green and Told podcast. Listen in at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Have a story to share or know someone who does? Email greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search UAB Alumni on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and until next time, go Blazers! <laughs>